when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Meaning what? In each of us, there is that ability to do good and to, to be that force of change. Just In every single person, we all are born with that inherent gift to do good. It made me think of this quote from Abraham Lincoln where he says, we rely on the better angels of our nature. So it, within you is a better angel. Exactly. That's exactly right. And maybe this is partly what Albany means when he says, if the heavenly spirits don't come down, mankind must perforce prey upon themselves like monsters of the deep, you know? You are those heavenly spirits. Cordelia is a heavenly spirit. You know, be Cordelia. Hello again. In today's recording, I'll chat with Bailey and Michaela about the remainder of The Grand Inquisitor by Dostoevsky. Today's quote of the day is by Sigmund Freud. Quote, The Brothers Karamazov is the most magnificent novel ever written. The episode of The Grand Inquisitor, one of the peaks in the literature of the world, can hardly be valued too highly. Obviously, he's right. Every time I reread this, especially the section that we're going to discuss today, I feel like my life has been changed all over again. For more about how and why, let's go into that chat with me and Bailey and Michaela. How are you? Pretty good. And here's Bailey. Hello, Bailey. Oh. How are you? Pretty good. How are you guys? Doing great. Pretty good. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> this is a hard reading to talk about, I think, because you haven't heard the recording that I did earlier today about the first part, the Vaughn part and the Grand Inquisitor part. Um, that part, in a way, slightly easier to talk about because Yvonne's arguments are arguments and they can be articulated. So Sima's life and the refutation embedded within it is not a refutation. I want to say that nothing that we are going to say in this conversation is going to justify the suffering of children that Yvonne laments. 
because it can't be justified. So if people listening to this, if the class is hopeful and expecting a explanation for that girl in the outhouse's suffering, we we will not provide such an explanation. It, it cannot be justified. I can't be persuaded that that girl's suffering is worth it. But I think what we could attempt to accomplish, the three of us right now, I think we can persuade ourselves to say, yes, I will be part of this world. You know, Yvonne says, I, I will return my ticket. I don't want to live in such a world where innocent children suffer. So I'm going to forfeit my life, basically. I'm not going to ask us to attempt to justify that girl's suffering, but I think the goal the goal of today's podcast is to argue why life is worth living. <laughs> if that's not too grandiose. I think I think that can be done. Mm-hmm. I think that can be done. So um a little bit of a some context here. The 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 novel The Brothers Karamazov asserts that there are three ways to react to the evils in the world. We can embrace it, and we're not reading the whole novel, but one of the brothers, Dimitri, is this kind of very sensual, kind of uh, self-indulgent. He just goes right into the central pleasures of the world. Yeah, so that's one reaction. We can just kind of live, we can just eat, drink, and be merry. The second reaction is that we can pretend that we're above it or outside it, or that we we can we can separate ourselves from it. This is what Yvonne argues. Can I just read, I wanted to put a few more details to this, and I wanted to read a little bit from this introduction from this book by Charles Guignon, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but it's very good what he says about this. He describes Yvonne's attitude this way. It is, it is. so this is, sorry, on page XV of the introduction, if you want to follow along. It is a drive towards self-affirmation and self-aggrandizement that motivates the reformers' attempts to transform human society. Compensating for their feelings of being outsiders, they tried to prove their superiority and worth by presenting themselves as an elite who will be like gods to the weak and helpless masses. What appears as selfless devotion to others then turns out to be pride and egoism. We see this both in Yvonne and in the figure of the Grand Inquisitor himself. I am above all of these masses. I know how to fix you all. Mm-hmm. I love what the, introdu- uh, what, what the introduction says on page 23, I guess, XXIII. Well, let me start on the bottom of the previous page. Again, a description of Yvonne. I'm still in the second possible reaction to suffering. One reaction to the evils of the world is to embrace it. The second is to pretend that we are exempt from it or that we can exempt ourselves from it. Recoiling in disgust from the primal evil in oneself, one tries to rise above such debasing and undignified tendencies by affirming oneself as a transcendent, more spiritual, more noble sort of being. But this attempt to achieve a superior position through one's own willpower to rise above the herd is quite obviously a product of pride. Trying to make oneself look good by making others look bad, laceration leads to subtly manipulative human relationships. Others are encountered as tools to be used in achieving one's own self-enhancement. What results from laceration then is not angelic behavior, but manipulative power plays and airs of superiority that tear us away from others and ultimately tear us apart within ourselves. Yvonne's announcement that I will reject the world isn't only harmful to him, but it's harmful to the people that he interacts with because he sees them as herds and cattle and okay this podcast will be dedicated to the third possible reaction to suffering and evil that the novel put forth puts forth it is a a, a reaction embraced by Alyosha and Zasima and I guess we could describe it as loving the world accepting responsibility for everything and everyone and accepting suffering so maybe we should start with responsibility and I will finally shut up and I'll ask you 
a very complicated question. This isn't. A, this is a question that might it might take us twenty minutes to answer. <laughs> what is so important about responsibility, according to Zasima? And how does Zasima learn to? How does he come to have this attitude towards accepting moral responsibility? Where should we begin in answering that question? Zosima sees accepting that responsibility as like a freeing thing. Like it, he re- talks a lot about confession and it's, yes. there's that that's a big emphasis in this part of the novel. And so even with the the gentleman that, that comes and, and is confessing this murder, you know, he like yes. talks about he, how he saw the, the joy that Zosima had after confessing um, in the middle of that duel. And then, but then this gentleman wants to have that and it, it takes him so long to be able to build up the courage to do it. Um, and then on his deathbed, he's basically like, I'm finally free from this guilt. I, I, I did it. Um, even though no one believed him, <laughs> but like him, the act of taking the responsibility and confessing it was almost freeing to him yeah. in that way. So we have to confess our own sins and take responsibility for them. He goes a step farther even at the very beginning of this, and the mysterious visitor is, an, is a great example of this. He, he's had the guilt of this murder for years and years and years, right. and it's been a kind of torture for him. But Zosima and Zosima's older brother, I mean, Zosima's older brother has this strange unnamed mental condition, and he gets sicker and sicker. And he starts saying things like, all men should wait on one another, and every one of us has sinned against all men, and everyone is really responsible to all men for all men and for everything. And then he says, I don't know how to explain this. Sorry, this is on page 41. So Seema's brother, everyone is really responsible to all men and for all men and for everything. I don't know how to explain it to you, but I feel it is so. How do we react to this claim? My gut reaction is, oh, he's so right. Like, oh, really? That, me... That's your gut reaction? Really? Okay. Say <laughs> yeah. more, Bailey. I've just been thinking about, you know, with peace building, we build peace with one person at a time. And there's a train of thought that I've had is that big world problems are also my responsibility to solve. I, you know, maybe I can only do a small bit and do it in my neighborhood, but doing it in my neighborhood helps contribute to the big part of it. Yes. And I think Zosima's brother made me think he was talking about servants, right? I should be your servant rather than you being my servant. Mm-hmm. It made me think of Christ washing his mm-hmm. apostles feet and how that there's no action that's below us that we shouldn't do if it serves somebody else for the greater good. I think it's our duty to make sure that we take care of people as much as we can. And if that for you is, you know, taking on the world, then I think that's what you have to do. How literal is he being in this moment? So this is what his brother says to him. And then he meets this mysterious stranger. He, he And then he, there's Father Afim who teaches him certain things. Um, but then, you know, near the very end of today's reading, he repeats this teaching from his brother. He says, 76. There is only one means of salvation then. Take yourself and make yourself responsible for all men's sins. That is the truth, you know, friends. For as soon as you sincerely make yourself responsible for everything and for all men, you will see at once that it is really so and that you are to blame for everyone and for all things. Bailey, I I guess I'm half surprised to hear that your gut reaction is that you agree. That's probably my second gut reaction. My first one is no... I'm not responsible for murders committed on the other side of the world. This is my question. Am I? How literal is he being here? For me, it's more maybe thinking I'm not maybe physically responsible for the actual act itself, but I am responsible for having empathy for both of those people. 
Mm. I'm responsible to have empathy for the person who did it and for the person who, you know, was murdered. You mean you're not, it's not as if you should start pretending as if you committed the murder, but you have a responsibility to those wounds are your wounds to heal. Is this what you mean? Yeah, I think that's how I live my life a little bit. It's probably not, you know, the easiest way to do it. I don't know. Growing up in a, you know, LDS household, you're taught mm-hmm. that empathy in the Christ-like way is to like the way to be. Yes. And I think for me in my life, I've interpreted that as it's my duty. And I've grown up in a somewhat turbulent household that it is my duty to have empathy where I can. Mm. And I think that, well, I think, well, it's the same thing as Osina says. I think somewhere he says about not judging somebody for what their choices are, or like he doesn't judge the man who visits him in his house. Yeah. And I think that type of empathy for people, you know, who you're accept, you're expecting condemnation. Yeah. If you cannot do that, I think that that's a gift. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. He says on 75, brothers have no fear of men's sin. Love a man even in his sin. For that is the semblance of divine love and is the highest love on earth. So we don't have to wait to start loving people until they're perfect. If we had to, love wouldn't exist. So since we don't have to, we might as well just start now. I don't. I feel almost feel torn in a way because I almost can see both sides of it. And I, when when his brother says this, he's it's interesting because he's like, I have so much time left to live, and but at the same time, everyone's calling him delusional too. And uh, at the end of his life, and so it's so hard to figure out because we don't know much about him other than that he was very you know separate from all of his classmates, and and we don't hear much about this. So to me, like when he was saying all these things, it almost feels to me as though it's like on your deathbed, you suddenly are very well aware of all of your mistakes. I think in that instance, it almost feel like even there's a tendency to almost put even more blame on yourself and maybe almost exaggerate your wrongs in a way too um, because he's so consumed by them it's weird I I feel kind of torn because I see Bailey's thing too because even on page 75 Zosima talks about how like someone when you pass by a child and you're spiteful and angry and then he he may you may not say anything to him but those ugly words uh, may like you know linger in that that child's heart and then he has this thing so that that kind of chain reaction in that sense too of our actions do affect affect individual people and those can then carry on to different relationships and things like that too but also with the whole on your deathbed how sane can you can you see someone i don't know like you see this in movies and as you read it in books there's different two different types of people there's ones that are on their deathbed and they're they see things almost more clearly and then there's some that are Mm. almost in that more delirium and so I, I have a hard time trying to figure out if Markle's more delirium or if he's seeing things clearer than he did before, I guess is almost another question in my mind. <laughs> uh, remember Lear, you know, Lear on his deathbed. Is he seeing her? Is she breathing? You know, we don't know if he's, we don't know. We're being asked with our Euclidean brains, our three-dimensional brains to conceive of four-dimensional objects. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult to think through this rationally. Michaela, you're right. On one hand, we don't want to be so hard on ourselves. It's bad to start lacerating and to say, I am wicked. I am bad. It is my fault. Everything is my fault. There's a poisonous version of this. There's an absolutely poisonous version of this that we need to avoid. But there is a version of this that I think Zosima is right to call salvation. And I think it has something to do with what you called the chain reaction, Michaela. I mean, it has absolutely everything to do with what Bailey is talking about, about love. And I got, that's kind of where I want to end our chat today. Love, love, love. We have to emphasize this. I want to talk about this chain reaction. You see this, this child in the street, and you, you don't even have to be mean to the child. 
But even just or if you have a wrathful heart, this is Zosima's phrase, the child will notice mm -hmm. and a series of dominoes will start to fall. You've all seen Jurassic Park. You know this chaos theory bit where it's like a drop of water here and suddenly there's a tsunami over there, you know? <laughs> I think this is predicting, this is a kind of version of that where one person's actions have incalculable effects, incalculable effects, and it's impossible to trace those consequences. So I think Sosima thinks that we have two options. Option number one is we could live a life saying, it's not my fault. Prove it. Prove that that's my fault. That's not my fault, and that's not my fault, and that's not my fault, and that's not my fault. I think that way madness lies. We have another option, which is to say, you know what? That probably is my fault. Everything is probably my fault. No one can be held singly responsible for a crime or a sin because who, know, who knows who said what to who, who said what to who, who said what to who, who went on and killed someone. Does this make any sense to you? Yeah, totally. There's, I think, speaking about the last thing, I think that's, I forgot there's a term for in, you know, in a court case of liability, right? Let's say somebody crashes their car, but if you earlier in that day had punched that person and then they were had a brain bleed, right? Yeah, you yeah. were technically responsible for right. them crashing their car. You know, the first question of like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. If everybody does that, where are we, right? That's an no, that's place. Court liability thing that you describe exists I'm raising children at the moment, and these children will go out into the world and do stuff. I feel responsible in a way. I know they're free agents. I know they're not me. But in a way, how they learn to live in the world is my job. I'm a teacher. You guys are my students. I feel kind of... Bailey, you're, you're going into... I don't know exactly what you, you want to do with some um, environmental sciences in Utah, but I... It's like, if you don't fix the inversion, that's my fault. I think that's true. I actually believe that. If you guys listening don't cure cancer, that's my fault. And if somebody in this class listening to this goes out in future years and murders someone, that's my fault. I think I literally believe that. This is not to say that I, I killed that person, but I had... I have a responsibility, you know, I have a stewardship, a kind of sacred stewardship. I have you for four months in a class like this, and that's a big responsibility. This is why I'm constantly telling you to, to quote NASA, dare mighty things, you know, or to be Don Quixote, to go change the world. I mean, if I, if even if I had a kind of wrathful heart, or if I had in my heart opinions about you guys that were like, oh, you'll never do anything good, you, you could tell. I only have one choice, the Father's Asima choice. You guys have to go change the world, and so do I. We just have to. I don't know, if, but but to, to say this makes me sound delusional. It makes me sound like Sasima's brother, doesn't it? Bailey is shaking her head no. I don't it's think so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go, Michaela. Well, no, it's like, like as you're just talking, it's like just the question that's, again, probably unanswerable, but just like how do we find that balance between taking that responsibility and like accepting it, but also not not taking it to the full extreme, like you're saying, like to where I murdered that person, like yeah. obviously you yourself didn't, but how do we find that balance and, you know, and thinking of, 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 you know, viewing the world and viewing ourselves is just a question that kept coming into my mind uh, as we, as we think about that, like, how does that affect our actions? And it's not easy. I feel pulled into this discussion about love. Well, maybe let's go there now, Michaela, because you asked this question again, like, how do we make sure that we're not doing the Avon thing of lacerating ourselves? Right. Because for me, thinking about not lacerating ourselves, I think 
the whole how to live document and in yeah. the poetry class, reading the essay about like, you know, yeah. trying to write the greatest poem of all time. I think those things are good. That's one of the reasons why I've loved taking so many classes from you is that it's like, oh yeah, even if I don't solve the inversion problem, you have benefited my life still. So I think the goal for us is to try and push people. Yeah. It makes me think on page 74, he's talking about prayer, but he says, every time you pray something, 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 it will give you fresh courage and understand that prayer is an education. So if we take instead of prayer and put it towards this effort of taking on responsibility that maybe it isn't ours, but maybe it can give us courage and it can be an education and it can make us better and people around us better. If, if you have these lofty goals, these crazy Quixote-esque ambitions, you'll probably fail. Even if you fail, I think it has a side benefit. You will succeed in convincing other people that this that they are strong and noble and brave and powerful and can do amazing things. So it's kind of win-win. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Bailey, your earlier comment about we're told to live like Christ. Yeah, I'm trying to be like Jesus. It's a song we sang as kids, you know? How did Jesus solve the problem that we've addressed. The problem is we we have to live as if we are responsible for all men's sins everywhere, but not in a way that makes us feel like worms. What did Christ do? He took upon him the sins of mankind. So if we're trying to be like him, shouldn't we follow his example and say, I am my brother's keeper and every human is my brother or sister? And how did he make sure that he didn't hate himself because of what the human race was doing? We haven't really started answering this question, why not kill ourselves? Morbid question, you know. <laughs> I think this will loop us in. These will start looping together here. Yvonne doesn't want to stay in this life. I promise I'm, I think we'll back into this, this question about Christ and how he manages this paradox. I asked you, where is it here? Life is heaven. You know, life is heaven. And I also say in this document, birds, leaves, and trees. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? Right. Keeps talking about birds, leaves, and trees. So why is the earth lovable? Why does Asima say we should kiss it? It was interesting when I was comparing this almost to what Yvonne was saying, like in, in the first part. A lot of what he was saying was not like an opposition necessarily, but almost that he loves God, but he doesn't love the world that was created by him. If that, I think he said yep. something like yep, that. Yep, where he yep. doesn't like the world itself. Whereas Zosima almost is almost in a way contradicting that in what he is expressing and that he loves loves the birds and the leaves and, and see it's almost Zosima almost is seeing the good in in the world. He like recognizes the suffering, but he also recognizes the good in it and the, the sinless ones and the birds and the nature, whereas humans are, are sinful, but nature and, and, and animals are, are sinless. And so he's almost seeing the good uh, of the creations and, and almost, I feel like in a way, as I'm saying this, like almost uses those as almost like what we can be striving for too, is, is almost striving for to almost become more like God and, and his sinless creations in a way. No, I love this. Um, the world is beautiful. You know, the world is beautiful. I was so excited to see a question about birds and trees and <laughs> my loves of my life. On page 47, he talks about every, it's, on the bottom half of the page, every blade of grass, every insect, ant, and golden bee also marvelously know their path. And to me, it's this idea that I've talked about in my major makes me think there's another quote farther in the back. 
page 75. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. If you can respect and acknowledge that the birds and the trees, they know their path, they, they're fulfilling their creation. And if we can have interest in them and love them, it can be a benefit to us and people around us. He says, this is on 75, love the animals. God has given them the rudiments of thought and joy untroubled. Do not trouble them. Don't harass them. Don't deprive them of their happiness. Don't work against God's intent. So wonderful. I also love what he says on 42. Birds of heaven. This is the top of page 42. Birds of heaven. Happy birds. Forgive me for I've sinned against you too. Wow. Uh, yes, he said, there was such a glory of God all about me. Birds, trees, meadows, sky. Only I lived in shame and dishonored it at all and did not notice the beauty and glory. A few lines down. Though I can't explain it to you, I like to humble myself before them for I don't know how to love them enough. If I have sinned against everyone, yet all forgive me too, and that's heaven. Am I not in heaven now? Wow. Wow. You know, imagine a world in which we all suddenly one day wake up and say, yeah, I am responsible for all sins everywhere. And everyone else also wakes up and says that. And everyone else also wakes up and says, I love you in your sin. Would we not be in heaven now? I think the world is lovable. Love the world, don't renounce it. Love the world, don't renounce it. It's like, um, I'm sorry, I'm doing a lot of rambling here, but you know, if you put, <laughs> if you put your hand on a hot stove, uh, your body knows how to act without your brain. So you can try saying nothing matters in the grand scheme of things. And you can try saying life isn't worth living like Yvonne does. You can try to say that, that this doesn't matter, but try saying that while your hand is in a flame. You know, your body doesn't care whether or not nothing matters in the grand scheme of things. Your body lives here and now. Your body knows what to do. And your body, I think it's your body that's reacting to the birds and the leaves and the trees and the animals. We don't love them for rational reasons. We love them. Babies love them. Kids, you don't need to be taught why to love them. Humans are just like a magnet drawn to these things. So let your body revel in what the body wants to revel in you know um you guys were both in that 201 class where we where we read the iliad and i'm thinking about the iliad a lot these days um remember, remember i promise i'll shut up soon remember um the very end achilles doesn't want to eat because he's upset about patroclus he doesn't want to eat and then finally he and priam have this moment and he eats again so why do we have food at funerals slightly morbid question you know why do we have food at funerals because Food tastes good. I think that's the reason because food tastes good. And we, yes, we're sad and yes, we're in pain. But if we start to renounce life, man, we're in big trouble. It makes me think of how much our mindset and our perspective on things really affect, makes such a big impact. I feel like if we have that mindset of, oh, everything in the world is just terrible, there's not much that is going to come from that. Whereas if we are, are seeing the good and choosing to love instead, yeah. that, that's when we can make a real change and make an impact in some way that's going to better the situation, at least in whether in a small or big way, you know, better than if we just oh, woe is me. This is, everything is awful around me. Um, yeah. Nothing's going to get done that way. This is kind of a, a recent thing that happened, but me and my roommates, we went on this, this run and we thought we were doing like a three mile run it ended up being a four and a half mile run because we didn't realize that we had gone that far the whole time. I'm like, Oh, like feeling really good. Um, like I couldn't see the time I, I, instead of, if I think if I had known how far we were really going and thinking about, Oh, I'm miserable. I have so much further to go. I would probably have 
been dying <laughs> on this run, mm-hmm. but because I was focusing on, you know, the, the good and cha- it changed the outcome of that experience um, from being a really horrible one <laughs> to being one that, oh, I'm proud of myself, did okay. Just huge. Absolutely. Impact. No, it, it's, it makes all the difference being resent. So we can't do anything about suffering. Suffering is here. It's not going anywhere. I mean, well, we can certainly increase it. That That's not at all a question. It's not even that hard to increase it. Being resentful about that suffering just causes more suffering. So we might as well have a good attitude. Sounds so stupid to say. It sounds like, well, think about that girl in the outhouse. Shouldn't we be thinking about that girl in the outhouse? Let's talk about her. Father Afim, Father Afim I think, says to Father Zasima when Father Zasima is training, or maybe it's vice versa. One of them says to the other one, this is on the bottom of 47, all things are good and fair. All things are good and fair. This is a sentence being written by the same person who wrote about that poor little girl. So square this circle for me. Put this square peg in this round circle. All things are not good and fair. Why is this a belief worth having if it's so patently not true? My brain wants to jump to this very quick answer that, you know, soothes my troubled conscience of being like, oh, Christ's atonement takes care of it. You know, his atonement solves all the problems, but it's such a takes away my responsibility, right? Okay, very good. And I think, I don't know what the answer is. I don't either. This is like, uh, we'll pitch this impossible question to Michaela in a second here. But, you know, I think think Dostoevsky, one of his projects across books is to slightly refute certain enlightenment values. Now, I'm all for enlightenment. You know, we've been celebrating in recent weeks this rover on Mars. Can't get to Mars without the enlightenment. But uh, there's no way to rationally explain the existence of suffering. This is one of the biggest criticisms against religion since the dawn of religion. And in fact, this is something the introduction t- talks about. Like, you just have to, we don't have to go there necessarily, but the introduction makes the point that you can't explain Zasima's point of view in an enlightenment framework. It just doesn't really work. So we will continuously stumble up against, yeah, but what about that girl in the outhouse? All is good and fair. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What would, what would Zasima say? He would say, listen to those birds. You look at those leaves. I think that's what he would say. You know, look at those leaves. Listen to those birds. I, when I think of this question of why, like, we can't understand how that kind of a horrible thing that happened to this girl could be good and fair, you know, and it's it's like almost something that we can't comprehend in our in our brains. And it, it kind of brings me back to Sosima's thoughts on just like how not knowing everything, like almost like having things be a mystery to us or not totally yeah. understandable is is actually a good thing that it's something that helps us to grow in, almost in a way. I feel like not knowing it helps us to, to almost learn more and to, to obtain more knowledge when things are a mystery or, or incomprehensible in, in something like this. It made me think of something on page 73. Is that the page? Is- uh, maybe. What is it making you think of? Um, at the bottom, he says, and now how many ideas there have been on earth in the history of man, which were unthinkable 10 years before they appeared, yet when their destined hour had come, they came forth and spread over the whole earth. Hmm. I like they did that, you know, maybe we're not supposed to know some things right now, but when we, we can't. do, it'll be great. We can't, we can't, I mean, we are limited. We're human beings with limited brains. You know, we can't, we can't know everything. On 44, he says, but the greatness of it lies just in the fact that it is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Let me give some context here. How could God give up the most loved of his saints for the diversion of the devil? Take from him his children. Take from him his children, smite him with sore boils so that he cleansed the corruption from his sores with a potsherd, and for no object except to boast to the devil. See what my saint can suffer for my sake. But the greatness of it lies just in the fact that it is a mystery. 
that the passing earthly show and the eternal verity are brought together in it. Because in a sense, like you can almost, he's talking about Job here, you know, and, and like he suffered so much. He didn't really, he was a good, a good man, just as like, you know, these, these children are, are innocent and that little girl was innocent. They both suffered a lot. It says for my sake, you know, and then goes on to talk about the mystery of it and how almost that interaction with, with um, Christ and the devil in a way, mm-hmm. like where like. He's like, he's still, he's still going to worship me after all of this is done and kind of a connection there in a way, not exactly, but between that girl's suffering and also thinking about Job's suffering and in the sense that they were both hadn't really done any, any wrong, but yet they still had, they still experienced that suffering. Yeah. I love that. I'm reminded of, it's like my kids, one trick that you, that we've learned to use to get our kids out of uh, kind of emotional cramp. So if they're hurt or sad and they're crying, we will start trying to make them laugh. Sometimes they resent us for this. They resent us for this because it works. But if we get the right joke, they can't help but laugh in a moment of fear or pain. They can't help it. There's something about the body, I mean, jokes are partly cerebral too, but I'm just trying to make this, this maybe a bad example, but I'm just trying to make the point that in order to fall in love with life and to fall in love with the world, we don't need rational explanations for our suffering. We need a good joke. We need a good meal. Pancakes. You know, what's better than pancakes? Maybe nothing. We need sun, birds, and leaves. These things are here and now. They're right in front of us. They're right in front of us. They're nowhere else. You know, I'm reminded, we're going to read Robert Frost in, in the, the other poetry class. So I'm kind of prepping for that. He has this wonderful poem called Birches in which he says, I wish I could get away from Earth. Kind of he has this Yvonne moment. I wish I could get away from earth a while because it's too hard to live on earth. But then he says, may no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish. And then he says, earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. He says, there's no love on Mars. I mean, not yet. (laughs) You know what I mean? So we have to stay on earth because that's where the birds and the leaves and the trees are. They're not on Mars. Earth is where love is. So this is partly why Zosima says at the very end, it's just so beautiful. It just changes my life every time I read it. He says, seek no reward for great is your reward on this earth. This is at the very end, page 78. The spiritual joy, which is only vouchsafed to the righteous man, fear not the great nor the mighty, but be wise and ever serene. Know the measure, know the time, study that. When you are left alone, pray. Love to throw yourself on the earth and kiss it. Kiss the earth and love it with an unceasing consuming love. Love all men, love everything. Seek that rapture and ecstasy. Water the earth with the tears of your joy and love those tears. Don't be ashamed of that ecstasy. Prize it for it is a gift of God and a great one. It is not given to many, but only to the elect. Are you persuaded? How do you feel when you get there? I was thinking about when you talked about there's no love on Mars and I was thinking, well, all the love that is on Mars, if you think of, you know, rovers came from earth anyway, right? And like, watching videos of successful land rover you know rovers landing and seek that rapture and ecstasy right like that's the only thing that you can call that type of moment in the control room is rapture and ecstasy this whole page is like a how to live document condensed right it's by having this type of rapture and ecstasy in our moments of suffering like with your children that's what makes life worth living mm-hmm. we were talking about trees earlier and this is slightly off topic i've I've been learning how to plant trees correctly in one of my classes. 
And we talk about staking trees like you see them. And you don't mm-hmm. want to stake them too long for more than a year or too tightly because they're supposed to bend. That's how they strengthen and how they get a good taper. It's how you mm-hmm. get a healthy tree. So your tree needs to suffer a little bit for it mm-hmm. to be better as it's older. I don't, I don't know. That, where is, I not a, that, that is not off topic because look at what he says right above where I read. He says, go at once and seek suffering for yourselves as though you were yourself guilty of that wrong. Accept that suffering and bear it and your heart will find comfort. There could be many answers to the question, why should we accept or maybe even embrace suffering? There could be many answers to that question. The the answer that you've just given us, Bailey, is one. Certainly it's one. If you have any other answers to this question, I would love to hear them. Why else is Asima so explicit about the importance of suffering, the usefulness of suffering, the value of suffering? Why else is it valuable? Now, I, I don't have a list in my mind of things I'm hoping that you'll tick, but that's certainly one reason. And the proof of that is he lives this ascetic life. L- let me turn this into a question. Why does he live an ascetic life in which he eats almost nothing? He has almost no possession possessions. He has rejected a life of luxury. Why is this lifestyle of a monk so relevant to his refutation? So relevant, I-, I keep using that word and I shouldn't, so relevant to his, his love of the world. It's almost like the greater the suffering, the greater the, you know, the evil in the world, also the greater the good and love that it almost you you get both. And I think of like, even when someone goes through something difficult, like say you, you lose a family member or you um, go through something really tough, that suffering is, is immense. Um, but then you also have the, a lot of times that closeness that comes maybe with your family that is still around that, that it's almost a greater love that and unity that that you receive with those people still on the earth as you go through that suffering together there is so much that goodness that comes out of that suffering and and personal growth as well and and that support and, and brotherhood with with other yeah. those around us as well i'll be annoying and remind you yet again of the iliad why are the humans in that book so much better so much more likable than the <laughs> gods because the gods don't suffer right and therefore, they're kind of cartoons, and we don't care about them. We have so little empathy for them. But for the humans, man, we just want to weep every page that a human is in pain. Why are birds so miraculous? Because they are mortal. Why do we like real flowers more than fake flowers? Because fake flowers don't die. It's a paradox, isn't it? We like the ones that die more. We like them more. Because they're frailer. Well, yeah, their frailty is like this exquisite paradox, right? Because they're so complicated with their biology and the cell, cells and plant yes. hormones, right? So you compare this immense, complex, mm. beautiful flower, which it's beautiful because it's supposed to entice pollination, right? It's all There's all purpose behind, behind why this beautiful, fragile, mortal flower is what it is. Whereas our, you know petroleum-based plastic <laughs> flower, you know, maybe has some cool chemistry behind, you know, the petroleum yep. in it, but it's a fake imitation that lacks any type of biological complexity. Totally. I love that paradox. Why are they, why are they so complicated if they only last a week? You know, it's like, I don't know, but isn't it amazing? I still think if we could genetically engineer a plant, and this is getting slightly off topic, but it's not just the petroleum versus the, what do you call it? Genet- the genes. Yeah. If we could genetically engineer a plant that lasted forever, I think we wouldn't like that very much, would we? It would become, how would we react to such a thing? It would become 
It's hard to imagine. Lame, stupid, almost a curse. Yeah. I like, I even think of something, you know, a plant that almost does last forever. It seems like, like the bristlecone pines okay. that are in, um, some in great trees basin. Yeah. yeah. They're incredible, but they're also not very showy, right? Like to the average person who doesn't know what it is, you'd be like, <laughs> man, that's an ugly tree. So I think maybe they can't be eternally beautiful, right? I don't know. Maybe those things can't no. last together. It is a weird thing. I, I mean, we admire those trees maybe more than other trees because of how old they are. But if they if if they were immortal, they would become kind of like uninteresting furniture. I think we admire them for their endurance, and their endurance is only possible because they are even after a, a couple millennia, they are actually immortal. So they last longer than the. I mean, it's, it seems like we're not making any relevant points here, but I think we are. That's true. If we if we want, I mean, why are pan? We are making relevant points. If we want love, we have to accept frailty. We have to. Is this a sufficient explanation or justification for that girl in the outhouse? Well, no. No, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I wouldn't make that trade. Like Yvonne says to Alyosha, if you could build the, the foundation of existence on the tears of, and it had to be built on the tears of one child, would you do it? And Alyosha says, I wouldn't do it. And I'm with Alyosha, I wouldn't do it. So it sounds like I'm trying to convince us that we should do it. Don't think it's worth it. What can we, since it is, since it already is, what can we do but love what there is to love? We can either love what there is to love, or we can make it a thousand times worse. I think those are our choices. There's this, oh, on page 63, um, the man who visits Soshima says, I know it will be heaven for me, heaven, the moment I confess. 14 years I've been in hell. Mm. want to suffer right because like if you don't accept to love what is to love you'll be in hell anyway yeah that's exactly right so we can choose we can choose to be in hell or we can choose to not be in hell can i ask two more insanely big questions (laughs) yes we can choose to be in hell and this man was in hell what does asima mean when he says heaven lies hidden within all of us He's almost quoting scripture here because Christ himself says, Luke, and when, they, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. So you can't send a rover to heaven. It's not a place. <laughs> Neither shall they say lo here or lo there. I can't point to where it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Meaning what? I think it almost goes back to like what we've been talking about before that we have in each of us, there is that ability to do good and to, to be, to, to be that force of change. Just in every single person, we all are born with that inherent gift to do good, you know, in order to, to get to that, sometimes we have to shed all of those, maybe not our imperfections or those things that almost mask that goodness in, in some ways. So we almost have to, it kind of goes back to that confession, like shedding those things that are impure or that aren't leading to that loving everyone and, and, and expressing that goodness and, and being that force for change. We have to, we have to dig through all of those. Not so more those parts that we don't love about ourselves, those parts that are not almost our natural man type of type of characteristics. We have to, to get through those, to find that heaven within each of us. So Sima says work without ceasing. If you remember in the night, as you go to sleep, I have not done what I ought to have done. Rise up at once and do it. Mm-hmm. This is a part of an answer. What does he mean? Heaven is within you. Just like, oh, I haven't cleaned my room. I haven't filed my taxes. I haven't 
sent that email that I owe that person. I haven't said thank you. If we all just start doing those things that we know we should be doing, heaven is right here. You know, I don't know. Bailey, thoughts? Such a good lesson. Michaela, I, I and Michael, I'm on exactly the same page as you. Well, I underlined this and I wrote, so heaven lies hidden within all of us. It made me think of this quote from Abraham Lincoln, where he says, you know, can we rely, we rely on the better angels of our nature. Mm. So it, within you is a better angel. Exactly. That's exactly right. And maybe this is partly what Albany means when he says, if the heavenly spirits don't come down, mankind must perforce prey upon him, uh, themselves like monsters of the deep. You know, you are those heavenly spirits. Cordelia is a heavenly spirit. You know, be Cordelia. Kind of, I'm curious about this epigraph. You know, he has an epigraph to this novel. The epigraph is from, what is it, John? Why, why did Dostoevsky choose this verse as the epigraph to the entire Brothers Karamazov? John 12, 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, this is one of the more cryptic utterances of Christ. I find this not immediately clear. What are your interpretations of this verse and how does it relate to Zosima and the things we've been talking about? What would you say? It's um, page 64, the bottom half. It's good that we're going here, actually. Yeah, because this is between the this is between Zosima and the mysterious visitor who mm-hmm. committed murder, isn't it? Oh. And, and Zosima quotes this scripture to him. Zosima quotes, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I had just been reading that verse when he came in. He read it. That's true, he said, but he smiled bitterly. It's terrible, the things you find in those books. <laughs> so I kind of want to know, I, again, I, this is a hard question because it's not an easy scripture to parse. It's, it's a kind of, I don't know, it's quite a complicated symbol. How do we interpret it, do you think? And how does it relate to Zosima's way of being in the world? I, I think of like the part specifically in it where it just talks about except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And there is, he talks a lot about the importance of community. I know we, we're only acting in our own inter- best interests and only thinking of, of ourselves. We distance ourselves from others. And rather than if we express and, and show that we are imperfect, that we're not, uh, mm. and almost humble ourselves in a way, like let us, ourselves fall and, and let ourselves die in a sense of like, you know, our, our hard moments, like that, that's where the fruit comes. That's where we become more united as, as a community and as societies, as we admit our, our faults are. I mean, that that father, that, that, that's right. I totally love that. Michaela, that, that man, one of the reasons he didn't want to confess his murder was that he was afraid how his children would react. Mm -hmm. Remember this? Mm -hmm. And after he confesses, he says this wonderful thing. Now he said, yeah, this is on page 67. After he confesses, he says, now I dare to love my children and to kiss them. But even the act, so even they don't even believe him, but even the act of confession, it's like he has had to metaphorically kind of kill himself or kill his old self. And this is the thing that has given him totally new life and a communal life. His Him and his children now are like mm-hmm. embracing in the most, so we have to kill to let our old selves die or our frail selves die or our weak selves die which is painful when i read it i i thought of it as a plant 
because it's where my brain goes. Yes, um, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this Christ uses all kinds of plant metaphors. Yeah. So it has to die to hit the ground. And the corn kernels are, they're all seeds, right? They're full of germ and gibberellins and maybe inrain and all of these different plant hormones. So it has to die and hit the ground before all those kernels can actually become fruit and make more yeah. corn. I, when I first read this and interpreted it, it was, you have to go through hard things for your work to benefit other people sometimes like it has to die for other things to come from it so sometimes you you know maybe your body has to die so those nutrients can feed other things you know maybe a little morbid or maybe you know you have to fail that test so you can spend other time you know time doing other things that you need to be excellent and literally die you know this goes back to why do we die well because it gives life meaning yeah i think that's why we die if if we didn't have to die nothing would matter that corn thing it withers and it falls and it gets dry and shrivels up and it detaches you know yeah. i don't know really know much about this of course i stay mostly indoors i'm afraid of the outside but it falls it's dead but it that's how it gets into the soil to, to sprout new life so anything else you wanted to say about this reading that you haven't that you want to before we close down just you have to love everything. You have to love what you can love and accept that you're going to die and love the people around you. Uh, love. I mean, it's hard to talk about without sounding cliche or sounding like a weird mm-hmm. pop song or a bumper sticker or something, but so be it. You know, so be it. We can sound trite and cliche. It's too important to avoid saying we have to love everything. Love the animals, love the birds, love those sticky little leaves. You know, Yvonne even says, I love those sticky little leaves. <laughs> Yvonne needs to just let himself love those leaves. And that he needs to he needs to learn how to be content mm-hmm. with those leaves, you know, and and to revel in in their beauty. Love them. Love them. Kiss the earth. You know, kiss the earth. If everyone started kissing the earth literally and metaphorically, heaven. We would be in heaven. Right. Heaven lies within all of us you can make that choice we okay excellent it's just this like this is the most transformative text isn't it it's the most transformative text (laughs) it's up to you i love what you said i know we're like really waxing long-winded here but um yeah to say oh christ will take care of it or he's already taken care of it no this is i mean whether so uh elizabeth your classmate said in the earlier podcast well that can be true but it's still not quite it's still in some ways a bad answer to Yvonne's claims because, and one of those reasons is because it gets us off the hook in a bad way. Yeah. You know, it's up to us. We have to make heaven. Mm-hmm. Christ is looking at his apostles and saying, he's pointing at their chests and saying, that's where it is, right? So are you going to give it to each other? It's up to you to give to each other heaven. You know, we're, we're waiting. embrace this moment to love, to receive love and to... Yeah, and to, sh- to show love to others, to embrace that embrace that opportunity. And in a way, you know, if everyone acted like this, maybe this is a logical refutation to Yvonne's arguments. Mothers wouldn't lock their daughters in outhouses if they knew that heaven was in them. Mm-hmm. If they stopped saying, oh, it's not my fault. I'm. It's not my fault. I was hurt by this. I was like Madame Defarge, you know, brooding on their wounds, you know. Oh, I, I am... It's my job to put heaven into this world. I didn't know. Maybe I should. There's a there's a quote. Let me see if I can find who it's from really quick. Yeah. 
it, well, first off, it makes me think this whole conversation, we'll just end part of the conversation. I'm familiar with this idea that during the second coming, God will come and he'll restore the earth. doesn't matter that we're polluting it. He'll restore it. No, People say that. Right? Yeah. People say that all the time, you know, and heaven is within us. You have to make it yeah. better. But the quote I was thinking of is from, I'm going to say his name wrong. Ellie Weissel, the man who wrote Man's oh, yeah. Search for Meaning. He says, peace is our gift to each other. Oh, wow. So we have to, you know, it's our duty, right? We wow. have to give that peace to each other. Peace is our gift to each other. There's several tattoos we should all go get. Just kidding. <laughs> peace, peace is our gift to each other. Life is heaven. So this is the first one. Peace is our gift to each other. Here's the second one. Life is heaven. Heaven is here. Third one could be something like love the birds and the leaves and the trees. And heaven is within you. Man. Okay. Thank you both for such an excellent chat. Thank I you thoroughly both. enjoyed this. Thank, thank you both so much. Yes. Yeah, it's really fun. It's really yeah. fun. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Bye. Another Russian text means another Russian poem of the day. This is from Osip Mandelstam. It's called Black Earth. Manured, blackened, worked to a fine tilth, combed like a stallion's mane, stroked under the wide air all the loosened ridges cast up in a single choir, the damp crumbs of my earth and my freedom. In the first days of plowing, it's so black it looks blue. Here the labor without tools begins. A thousand mounds of rumor plowed open. I see the limits of this have no limits. Yet the earth's a mistake, the back of an axe. Fall at her feet, she won't notice. She pricks up our ears with her rotting flute, freezes them with the woodwinds of her morning. How good the fat earth feels on the plowshare. How still the step turned up to April. Salutations, black earth. Courage. Keep the wide eye. Be the dark speech of silence laboring. That's it for now. 
I think next up will be Tolstoy's short novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. In the meantime, as usual, keep reading and keep enjoying these readings. (laughs) 